0: Told
1: me long time ago. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the 440 Guitar Podcast. My name is Gerald Powell. Thank you so much for tuning up. You can guess the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor.fm forward slash 440. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at the 440 guitar podcast, just so you can get all the recent uh, ep- updates on the episodes that are going to be coming out. Uh, and today we have a really talented guest here, uh, talented guitarist with us today, uh, coming out from Massachusetts. Uh, the Boston Globe uh, described him as a searing blues guitarist, uh, and he's been referred to as the future of the blues as well. Uh, he's also shared the stage with artists such as Gary Novak, Travis Carlton, Josh Smith, and many many others. Uh, he released a self titled uh, EP a few years ago, and he released his uh, debut uh, album uh, titled "Keep On Turning" in 2019. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Seth Rosenbloom. Seth, how are you?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm just trying to trying to trying to cope with all this craziness, man. How's uh how's has the quarantine life been for you as a musician?
0: It's different for sure. I mean, I was pretty constantly on the road from about December through then to February to now. I mean, now it's starting to come in with all the cancellations, but uh, uh, just trying to stay as creative as possible at home and uh, really take it one day at a time.
1: Uh, yeah, that's all we can do. With, that's all we can do, it seems like, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, before we get started, Ben, I just wanted to say um you know you, there's a there's a there's a really um there's just a really special uniqueness with your guitar playing um you know your your blues guitar playing your your guitar phrasing is like outstanding. So well, amazing.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, of course, of course. And um yeah, just you know, the that like the the two things that really stuck out to me when I uh, when I heard you play, the first time I heard you was uh, at the slide bar I want to say out in uh, Fullerton around um, it's like the big bar where all the big uh, players from NAM play and it's typically the first bar to be sold out because <laughs> everybody wants to see these blues guitar players play and unfortunately I was one of those people that didn't get, wasn't able to see it but somebody always films uh, films those performances so I, I was actually able to watch a, a previous Nam uh show uh, a performance at the side blues guitar uh bar and uh and you were playing and um i don't remember what song you were playing but i just remember your guitar phrasing and everything i was like whoa this guy this guy's got some chops and um <laughs> and uh i i also remember just your some of your your bends you know your, your high bends it really reminds me of like freddie king so like it, you really you really uh, do the blues. You really respect the blues, well, man.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, Freddie's one of my one of my all time favorites, and yeah, those shows at Nam. I've done the last two years a show at Slide Bar, uh, brought some friends on. Uh, oh wow! But they've been a blast. I mean, Two Rock Amps has uh, graciously sponsored both of those, and it's been great working with them. But yeah, they've been real highlights of uh, of the last couple of years.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. So, of course, with the 440 Guitar Podcast, uh, we're really big on the origin story just to get a sense of, um, you know, how uh, how these, uh, you know, incredibly talented artists uh, got to where they where they are now and uh, what they experienced back then. Uh, So just to hit the ground running, um, what are some of your earliest memories um, when it comes to music for you?
0: So I grew up in a, I guess, it would call it a musical family. My dad was uh, a professional violinist, played, uh, mm. was the concertmaster of the Boston Ballet Orchestra. Music was always around the house. My parents had actually met in, uh, in music school as well. So, oh, wow. I mean, I remember super, super young. I always did have a fascination with guitars. I was kind of getting both sides of stuff from my mom was a big beatles fan my grandmother was a big elvis fan so in terms mm-hmm. of blues or rock or that's the beginning uh but i was also getting a heavy heavy dose of classical music mm-hmm. and i started I think I have like a quarter size violin around age three or four. So that was really the start of me playing music.
1: Wow. Wow. So for so I'm assuming since you're you know, your your parents were classically trained, uh, that starting violin, I mean you, you kind of started early as far as uh learning that instrument and then reading music as well, right?
0: Yeah, I actually don't remember learning to read music. I oh, still really? Yeah, I still read better on violin than I do on guitar. Just (laughs) You know, (laughs) playing violin, reading is a major, major part of uh, learning the repertoire and stuff where so much of playing guitar, especially blues, is more ear-based and stuff. I can read, but I'm not a great sight reader. I started super, super young uh, playing violin, but I was always also into... More blues, rocks, 50s, 60s kind of music. Was a big uh, Motown fan. Listened mm. to a lot of, you know, James Brown, Aretha, all that stuff pretty early on.
1: Nice. Nice. Um, when, when did you transition from violin to guitar were your were your parents pretty supportive in that were they like no you need to learn the violin
0: <laughs> there
1: was a bit of both there
0: it was always kind of a household rule where I had to play an instrument and mm. you know practice regularly all that but I actually when I think I was 11 in theaters saw the movie School of Rock mm. and Loved it and was like, oh, I want to do that. That looks fun. And remember getting the School of Rock soundtrack mm-hmm. on CD, which had Zeppelin, Cream, uh, a bunch of other stuff. All Stevie kinds Nicks of... Stevie Nicks and all that. Yep, I was going to say Stevie Nicks. Uh, a ton of like kind of 60s through early 90s, probably rock on it. Yeah. Loved that and... Saved up like all the birthday money, Christmas money uh, and bought a red Ibanez RG120 and like nice. great practice amp. So that was the beginning of it. Had a couple of years where I played guitar and was still playing uh, violin and around by 13, 14, I was really stopping playing violin and just focusing on, on guitar.
1: Wow. Wow. Um, do you recall any, um, now I know as far as, you know, you, you're, you listening to, to those, uh, th- that school rock CD, of course that had a, all of those, uh, different artists and bands on there. Um, when did the, when did you feel that the blues really consumed you? Were there any particular artists of the blues that you were like, you know what, like I really have an affinity for the, for the blues and really concentrated on the blues. When did that happen for you?
0: So weirdly enough, as kind of an early teenager and stuff, after getting into stuff, like the first entry point to me, I was a big Elvis fan still and very much Mm -hmm. classic rock. Mm -hmm. As happens with a lot of guitar players, I got into the hard rock stuff, metal, shred, all that. Uh, So I was a huge around ages, you know, 12 to 14, 15, huge Metallica fan, huge mm-hmm. Dream Theater fan, you know, John Petrucci, Steve Vai, mm-hmm. uh, Cetriani, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. when I was about 13, I saw that Dream Theater was coming to Boston to the Orpheum Theater. Really wanted to go and asked my parents if I could, and they said no way you're going to a 3000 seat theater by, by yourself. <laughs> Uh, But my mom made me a deal that she'd take me to that if I went to any concert she picked out. Hmm. And this was about 2004, 2005, probably. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened she read in the Boston Globe, up and coming blues guitar player coming to Sculler's Jazz Club. It was Joe Bonamassa still playing club yeah so that was really my first exposure to live blues and definitely it didn't immediately change what I was interested in playing but it definitely had a lasting impact of leading me down down that path and it, it it became a thing I'd say 16 started going regularly to some blues jams and stuff just to get that experience playing with other musicians getting thrown in in different situations and by i'd say 1920 it was just it was what felt most authentic to me and even though it was kind of the you know cool thing in the guitar world to be one of the shredders and all that stuff it it was just never my thing and kind of at that point really started focusing on blues
1: yeah wow now um i was reading that you uh you received a, a scholarship from the Berkeley college of music around 16. Is that right?
0: That is correct.
1: Um, okay, great. Awesome. T- tell me about that, that, that experience or that process. Cause I'm assuming you had to uh, pick a certain piece to, to audition with, right? I'm not familiar with that, the process of that.
0: Absolutely. I had a really, really strange path uh, through school in general and that played, played in with it of, mm-hmm. Growing up, I had gone to a pretty rigorous K through eight school, private school in the area here, and then went to the public high school and basically uh, figured out pretty quickly that at that private school they had been giving, you know, grade work that was a year, two, three years ahead of what most kids were doing at that grade level. So got to the high school and was super into music at that point. Pretty much knew that by freshman sophomore year that that's what I was going to want to pursue professionally. And after freshman year, went to a Berkeley summer program, got back to school in the fall, and was just bored at that point. Was 16. And somehow, looking back on it, I don't really remember how it all transpired, but ended up leaving high school early auditioning for Berkeley, and going when I would have been a junior in high school.
1: Oh, wow. So uh,
0: the audition piece at that point was still a big John Petrucci, Vi, Cetriani, Yngwie fan. So I did off Petrucci's solo album, the tune Glasgow Kiss. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, very much not a blues song at that point, but that was my <laughs> audition song and, you know, I think it was a bit of sight reading involved. I know it was limited, limited improvisation in the audition, just playing over like 12-bar blues. Uh, but yeah, so ended up starting at Berkeley a few weeks after I turned 17 that fall. Wow.
1: Now, before you did the audition process, I mean, going from leaving, what was it, junior year of high school to audition at Berkeley, I mean, how did your parents feel about that?
0: Actually, sophomore year of high school. (laughs) (laughs) Even worse, even worse. Uh, So I had uh, already, after that Berkeley summer program, I had been Mm -hmm. studying with a Berkeley professor taking some private lessons. Mm -hmm. So he was very, positive about he didn't know what the implications would be on the academic side and what they would require but on the playing side that it shouldn't be a problem for me to audition and get in so Mm -hmm. it wasn't going into the whole situation totally blind Mm -hmm. uh they were very supportive i mean i think it took maybe a week or so for (laughs) to get on the same page but they also saw it was you know, at that point in school, at that school, I, I wasn't really having to try or do all that much. And so I ended up tutoring through the classes that I wanted to finish. Uh, I remember tutoring through calculus, tutoring through some stuff. So it was never that I didn't care about education, but I've never been all that much of a fan or believer in structured education of any kind. I mean, I consider myself as a guitar player, mostly self-taught. I've had some Hmm. teachers that have had a great impact on me, but I've never spent more than maybe a year studying with anyone. Uh, It's more been that I've found a specific thing I've wanted to learn from someone and gone to them for that.
1: Wow. Wow that's pretty incredible so i I mean that's 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 pretty awesome as far as to have you know your your parents uh good to 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 take that route and given you know that that path you know and just and uh them just being like well you know he's going to he's going to a school it's just a different
0: (laughs) exactly exactly
1: (laughs) oh man um Do you remember the first, um, when you started to really uh, dive into the blues, do you remember your first uh, live performance when you played live uh, playing the blues?
0: Sort of. I mean, as I said, as a teenager, Boston area is really hard in terms of just liquor laws and stuff uh, Mm. with gigging underage, like a lot of places are. So I played in like a rock band in high school that I think we played a couple gigs around, but it wasn't really what I wanted to be playing. And so around, yeah, like 16 started, I'd say two or three a week at one point was going to blues jams just to get up and play and getting that experience. So that was, you know, the first out in public blues playing that I was doing Then I started doing some gigs under my name where I was using like other singers performing uh, because at that point I wasn't singing. And then I very clearly remember the first performance uh, where I was fronting the band singing, playing, and that whole thing. And that was, uh, I want to say that was December of 2016. And I remember it because at the time I was living down in North Carolina in the Raleigh area Mm -hmm. and scheduled a performance. I think it was two days before Christmas when I was back up in Boston visiting family. And I really have not ever luckily had to deal with much stage fright or performance anxiety. And I was more nervous than I've ever been for that because there's something Mm -hmm. different about singing than playing an instrument just in terms of the vulnerability and the the exposure, you know, the instrument's almost a buffer of it's you playing the instrument, but it's something a little different where when you're singing, that's just you right out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you as far as how did you feel, you know, singing when, you know, when, as far as you, you know becoming a musician you know singing wasn't necessarily the first thing to, to start with i i mean i know even from for myself playing guitar and, and getting to the point where like oh should i sing this i don't know if i should sing this and just being it's like being really self-conscious with that but you know not with your playing but just with singing just that being an entirely different animal
0: absolutely and i mean i always liked singing around the house and stuff but mm. it was a whole different step to it you know stepping in front of a microphone live i'm really really glad i did (laughs) and and kind of got (laughs) got over that because it was you know the first time was terrifying and then it got as things do easier and easier but i found that uh the singing definitely helped my playing as well just of having that awareness of the whole song and i think as guitar players we have that tendency to focus so much on the guitar solo (laughs) right? with everything else being secondary. And when you sing and you're then directing the whole song and involved in it, it really makes you focus more on the song as a whole, how the guitar solo fits in with the vocal line and the melody and all that. It just makes you more aware of that stuff where, yeah, you might have this super cool thing you think you could play as the solo but does it go with the rest of the song or are you just playing it because it's flashy and it it might (laughs) uh, be cool to play from a guitar perspective
1: right exactly exactly um were there any blues guitar players that kind of helped you like uh, identify how you should sing and 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 play uh play the blues because i know like for me it's funny, like I had to take a step back and like I was, I remember recording a song and, and singing it one way. And my wife was like, like, honey, that sounds terrible. <laughs> she's like, she's like, cause she's a singer and she's like, You're, you don't, you don't, you can't sing, but there's, there's a way you can, you can, you can sing, you know, that, that, that'll not, not try it in a traditional sense, try it to be how you would do it, you know. So I was thinking of certain blues players or certain blues players, you know, they'd sing "And all. They were just kind of like, having just saying different types of uh, slight you know phrases or inflections or what have you and then I was like oh I just need to, I need to think about the blues and just you know so, some blues blues players had great voices but a lot of them didn't but they're just great musicians were there any uh, artists that kind of like stuck out to you that you're like think of this person as you start singing, and then you know before you just got really comfortable singing and playing
0: Sort of. I mean, I always definitely had my favorite blues singers Uh, Mm -hmm. for a guitar player who sings B.B. King is top of the list. I think for a lot of people, B.B. is way up there. Uh, And then Bobby Bland for me is a huge, you know, influence vocally. And uh, I think he's one of the best male singers of all time in terms of closer to what I do. Uh, yeah. You know, I was always a huge Stevie fan, still am. Uh, mm-hmm. I just always tried to absorb everything I could of different singers and really try it in my own way, get mm-hmm. some of that smoothness and just ease that you hear in a lot of classic blues uh you know i'm a huge fan of elmore james those records because it's just yeah. the delivery is so easy it's i never wanted it to come across where i was trying too hard <laughs> because i think the best blues singers there's just that ease and smoothness to the to the delivery and then you know it started later on where i now listen to a lot of stuff that isn't exactly blues but is in that blues soul area of stuff of donny hathaway and Mm. al green and all that stuff where it has that bluesiness to it but it also uh has a bit bit of something else
1: right right absolutely absolutely um so given your, your caliber of artistry and, and, you know, you being a, a, a well respected player, um, I was wondering if you had any fun, interesting or just uh, really cool stories that you can share, um, you know, whether it's playing live or working with a musician and playing and just like a really funny or fun story. Any, any stories you can share with us?
0: I mean, I think one of the coolest moments for me is, so my album Keep On Turning, which came out last January, the uh, planning for that started, I guess, the year before, and or actually two years before that, uh, because that was recorded between... May and July of 2018. And then Mm. it took a while to do all the things you have to do with Mix Master, get it to uh, press, get it to all that stuff before it actually hits hits the streets for sales. But uh, started planning it, I guess, around 2017, knew I wanted to do a full-length record Mm -hmm. uh, and was at that point... This was even before I did that first self-titled EP, which came out in September, I believe, of 2017. Yeah. I had done an event for a few years called International Guitar Summit in Durham, North Carolina. I think the first year I did it was 2013, And I think the last year I did it was 2017. So for about four or five years straight, met a lot of uh, people who now I consider good friends through that. Uh, But in 2017, Josh Smith and Kirk Fletcher were both on teaching and playing there as well. And I had, I think, talked with Josh... In some capacity online, you know everyone's on Facebook and sending messages back and forth or commenting. But it was first time meeting, hanging out, and as happens at those kinds of events, late at night you end up in someone's hotel room with guitars out. I think it was myself, uh, Josh, Tom Quayle, Mark Lettieri. It was awesome lineup. that time. Kirk was there. Yeah, it was great. Uh, but ended up sitting around and you know the conversation goes where it goes and josh at that point was talking about finishing up the studio he was building in his house Hmm. and then ran into josh again at winter nam that year and at that point was really getting to the point of getting ready to do a record and he i think i've it was like five minutes in passing, but I said, hey, I know you're going out off on tour tomorrow, but when you're back, I'd love to talk about maybe doing my record at your place. Because uh, he had started at that point producing in his own studio, and he's one of my favorite players. I really trust his ears and stuff, and I knew that I wanted to have someone produce that record. I didn't want to self-produce being yeah the age I am, late 20s, I think older musicians, and I don't even mean older, older, but even mid-30s or older, had that experience of on sessions. It was everyone getting called into a studio, sitting around and laying down tracks. Now it's like all the sessions, for the most part, except for a few that I've done, are someone sends me tracks. I track at home. And then send them back <laughs> where <laughs> it's more limited in terms of I wanted to be able to focus on my playing and not have to also try to communicate to a drummer or bass player what I wanted them to do. So I wanted someone producing. Anyways, Josh and I talked, set everything up. And then, you know, he kind of asked if I, I was okay with him just doing the hiring for bass player drummer. And I said, yeah, of course, totally. Totally. And he called maybe, you know, the week before I was heading out to LA to do the first sessions. And he's like, yeah, so I got Gary Novak and Travis Carlton on the session. And I said, oh, really? Those are, if I had to pick a dream rhythm section, that that would pretty much be it. Because uh, I had first heard Gary playing with Mike Landau in 2010, maybe? 2010, 2011?
1: Okay. And you know,
0: you hear him play once and he's instantly one of your favorite drummers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I had heard Travis with I think with Landau and also with Scott Henderson. It's like those are the guys that uh you know, Mike Landau, Scott Henderson, two of my favorite all-time players. Yeah. So it was really surreal walking into the studio day one and it's like, okay, this is this is the rhythm section. <laughs> I have played on the record. And it's like, oh, I better play well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you you kind of got the all-star team right there.
0: (laughs) Very much so, very much so. But, I mean, they are just the nicest guys and so easy to work with. But it was also – it was definitely a learning experience for me and also eye-opening to see – in LA where so many sessions happen. And obviously those guys have played on tons of records over the years, how quickly stuff comes together and just the workflow and how they can knock out a track make it feel and sound totally organic playing through something, you know, the first or second take.
1: Right, right. This is actually a good segue into uh, just talking about the creative process for uh, for uh, keep on turning. Um, what were some songs that really stuck out to you as far as, um, you know, you uh, as far as uh, working on some of those songs where you're like, man, like, I really like this. song. I really like this song and and uh, and really just uh, really uh, are. You, you, something really stuck out to you as far as the creation of, of uh, those songs or just working on those songs. What are some of those songs that like, keep on turning that, 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 that stick out to you?
0: So from a writing process, it's interesting. That album's almost split in thirds of nine tracks, three-year-old blues covers. Uh, I had been doing Look Over Yonder's Wall live already a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to get that on there. Uh, always had loved palace of the king wanted that on there and then wanted like a a bb tune too so did heartbreaker then three songs were co-written with a good friend of mine here in boston sonia ray taylor who's a great Mm -hmm. songwriter those were some of my first experiences co-writing great experience working with her where she's just so great at where sometimes I'll hit a wall in terms of finding the perfect rhyme. She'll have 15 options before I've thought of one. (laughs) And it just keeps (laughs) that process moving. I think the song that stuck out in terms of writing at the most was Right About Now. That one I had started writing about, I wanna say spring of 2017. That was almost ready when I did the self-titled EP, but it was one of those songs where you're writing, you get the bulk of it, but it needs, like you know you have a verse that's really strong, but you can't find the chorus to go with it. And I forget Mm -hmm. if it was exactly which part I had, but it was stuck on paper for about a year. And then finally started writing another song and realized, oh, this part goes with that super well. And it came into into one song together. But that that I'd say was the most rewarding in terms of finishing the writing process, just because it had been such a long uh, time since I had started working on it. And that was also, I'd say, one of the more kind of personal experience ones on the record. So just getting that out finished was uh, was very rewarding. Uh, You know, in the studio, in terms of the process, that was a whole different story. Uh, There were ones that I thought would be really difficult that came out super easy in the studio. And then some of the stuff that you think you're going to be able to just knock out ends up being a lot more challenging (laughs) than than you think it will be. It's funny how that happens.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Very cool. Um, I was wondering as far as uh, the song uh, uh, Broken Lonely. Yes. Yes. I really, I really like that song. That's one of my, um, some of my favorite playing from you on that record was that can you you. tell me yeah no problem can you tell me a little bit as far as how that that song came to be sure so that was one of the ones uh that I co-wrote with Sonia
0: and I remember going into uh her studio her uh she and her husband had a great studio in the area here both really good friends of mine her husband is one of the best guitar players in the Boston area. For anyone listening, Ryan Taylor, if you look him up, incredible player, great slide player too. Uh, And I went over and had, I think that was the last song that got written for the record. And I said, okay, I know I want a slow blues on the record, but I don't want it to be a heartbreak slow blues. It has to be something different because lyrically that's just been done so much so that was writing wise it was like okay what can we do that isn't like a a love song heartbreak slow blues and it's more challenging than you think it will be (laughs) because that that tempo and feel and everything just everything that pops into your head off the bat wants to make that the subject matter but uh so wrote it with her and then going into the studio I credit Josh with a lot of the arrangement things that happened on the Mm -hmm. record. So like that intro of the hits, I had come up with, I think I had had the idea for some kind of an intro thing that just wasn't the classic lead in. Uh, And I forget if the very first part with the hits was Josh or myself coming up with that, but Mm -hmm. he had the idea to come in on the four chord there and then have that walk-up going into the solo, so a lot of the arrangement stuff. And then it was just kind of, we didn't want that one sit back too much of kind of like a Sky is Crying yeah. up-tempo, kind of pushed slow blues a bit, and then to kind of get back to that, uh, that intro idea with the hits coming out of the song. Mm. But uh, that was a really, really fun one to record with the guitars the idea was to do one track of the guitars were overdubbed but it was just sitting playing through the whole thing and i may have punched one or two things here or there but didn't want that one really layered like some of the other tunes made sense to have happen just really organic had the organ on there too and everything to uh pull it together but i I was really, really happy with how the tones came out on that. That Those were some of my favorite uh, guitar tones on the record. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was one of my favorites to record. Then let this town bury me
1: things that that i that i I really like um that that i liked most about that song is that you know i feel like i've I've always had this uh this journey as a guitarist trying to figure out how i can play through the guitar versus playing the guitar and i feel like for that song like that was definitely a demonstration where i felt that you played through the guitar like it felt very very uh, uh emotional and um you know and just and then just from a technical standpoint it was great but just as far as playing through the guitar and you know and, and uh and everything i feel like you you really achieved that for that song do you do you feel like um do you feel like you're still like uh when you're playing that you you know that you're you're trying to play through the guitar and serve the song versus playing the guitar do you find that str- do you have that tr- that struggle every now and then or
0: I mean, I found that in terms of on the record, that was one of the songs where the solo and everything I was doing, and even in the studio knocking out the tracks, it was closer to kind of the mindset and everything I get into when I'm playing live. And to me, that's one of the most challenging things doing the blues record is so much of blues is I don't want to say designed to, but kind of comes across best live. And some of that energy of feeding off the crowd and everything, that's hard to capture in the studio. Uh, right. Especially just because I've spent so much more time playing on stage, well, up until uh, the current situation, playing on stage touring uh, than I do sitting sitting in a studio. So that was one of the ones where I remember really cranking up the, uh, you know, I was sitting in the control room, but we had the uh, monitors really cranked up trying to just get as close to the feel of the mix you'd experience live and really just getting into that mindset. Uh, It's always a challenge to just Make sure that you're staying in the moment and staying true to the song, but I find that much easier live, especially playing with musicians I play with a lot. That's easier to accomplish. That
1: Mm, interesting. Interesting. That's the first, and that makes sense too. That's that's the first I've I've heard that type of response. But it makes, but conceptually it makes sense because I feel like I feel like some of my best work is when I'm working with somebody else versus you know me working on a project on myself or or whatnot um so that makes a lot of sense as far as for to have to have that come out you know naturally when you're working with other people creatively that's really the best way for that to to happen so that makes a lot of sense it's also
0: the i guess reality of touring in 2019 2020 of I play with so many different rhythm sections touring. Like, I just can't always have my guys from Boston going on the road because financially it doesn't make sense. Logistically, often it doesn't make sense. And I've played with some great rhythm sections all over, but when it's not a band that you're used to playing with, there's some degree of you almost coaching the performance of the song as it's going on to make sure those transitions are happening. There's less of the ability to kind of have that silent communication to where the guys that I play with the most in Boston, they know exactly where I'm going and they I know where they're going just because we've played so many gigs together that you get used to kind of those uh, unsaid body language and just uh reactionary kind of messages going on and that definitely always makes it easier when i'm playing with guys i'm used to playing with it makes it easier to just kind of turn off my brain (laughs) and just play and not think about anything else not have to think about okay i gotta make sure i cue this solo coming up gotta make sure i uh cue this dynamic change or hit the ending right on where I can be a bit freer and I know they're going to catch all those things.
1: Wow. Nice. nice. Do you have any, um, uh, any favorite venues that you've played where you're like, man, that was a great experience or just playing with somebody else, uh, in a, during a, in a venue. Uh, do you have anything like that?
0: I got to say, I got to go back to those uh, slide bar Nam shows the last two years. I mean, the lineups have just been fantastic. The rhythm section's been great. And that room is, it's a sweaty rock club in the best sense of the term. Like it is, I think the capacity and there's about 200 and we've sold it out both years so it's packed everyone's getting rowdy you know want in a very party mode after uh after long days of nam that's a highlight and then i'd say just a couple of my favorite venues i've played on tour it's one of the worst names of a venue given current uh situations but uh It's been around for, I think, over 100 years. Isis Music Hall in Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, wow. Incredible stage for a small club. Just great people, everything. And then over in Edinburgh in Scotland, Edinburgh Blues Club there, which is at the Voodoo Rooms, which Mm -hmm. is actually like a built-out ballroom. They do have sound, the load-in, is one of the worst load-ins of any club because it's on a high second floor. So it's a very steep staircase. (laughs) But it's like an old school, you know, chandelier and everything and painted ceiling. It's a Uh. built out stage in there, but again, just a great atmosphere, great people loved playing there. So those are two two venues that really stick out. out of everywhere I've played
1: that's cool
0: and then you know you get some of the classic blues clubs in areas like I just played uh the funky biscuit down in uh Boca Raton in Florida and there are a lot of videos online of the uh of uh of the funky biscuit and that's just one of the best blues clubs around like great stage great sound great backline. uh Closer to the feel of like the Iridium in New York or really a nice kind of upscale jazz blues club. So that's a great one. And uh, I actually showed up to that gig and Josh Smith had played the night before there. And he still had he he was on a fly in. I had driven down. So I had my aunt in the car but I didn't realize the amp he was using for the gig the night before was a backline amp there. Mm. And I didn't even bring an amp into the gig because they have a collection of vintage Fender amps. Uh, So there was, I think it was like a 68 or 69 Super Reverb already mic'd up on the stage and it's like, "Uh, I I don't need to walk all the way to the car and bring bring an amp in. (laughs) This will work.
1: Right. (laughs) And it's not just like any amp. It's like the amp to a lot of people. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite amps. I have a uh, a 67 Blackface
0: Super that I love. And, uh, I mean, I'm a big, big fan of the Two Rock amps, uh, Victory amps. And I mostly use my Two Rock Live. But uh, that's mostly just for the reason that at a lot of clubs nowadays, I think all of us as guitar players know that most venues don't want you to be loud or even moderately loud to where you can push the amp to where you're happy with where the (laughs) breakup is. And super reverbs, unless you can get that uh, volume around three and a half, four, it's really not opening up like you want it to. And ideally, you know, if I take a super out, I want to have it on six. Like I want it where it's peeling paint off the walls. And (laughs) even though the two rock is hundred watts, big amp, loud amp, if you want it to be with the master volume on that, it's a lot more controllable. And I always have sound guys kind of stare me down. And it's like, what are you bringing in here? With <laughs> that in a four ten cab, but then I turn it on. It's like, oh, that's really nowhere near what you're dealing with with like a twin reverb, a super, or even like a Vibrolux and some of the
1: smaller Fender amps. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. Um, I was gonna ask you just a little, a uh, couple of things as far as like uh the type of guitars that you you use. Now the 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 Telecaster style uh, LSL that you're holding on your cover for um, uh, for your album. Do, did that guitar get any playtime throughout the album?
0: Yes, it did. So uh did the whole record at Josh's studio out in LA. So did it in two chunks, flew out from Boston both times. The first time I just brought one guitar, which is the guitar that probably is in most videos with me, my 56 Strat. Uh, that's actually the only time that guitar has flown. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> just had that there. So that got some playtime. The second time out there, I had my LSL Badbone, Bone, which is the telly style. Mm. And then I also had my green, kind of surf green LSL Satokoi, the Strat. Mm. So those three of my guitars got playtime. And then even with his absurdly heavy strings, I did play a couple of Josh's guitars on the record. I used, he has, I think it's made by a German company. Uh, it's like a Les Paul style uh, guitar. And then he has uh, one of those Josh Williams Mockingbirds, 335 style that got quite a bit of play. Pretty much all the humbucker stuff were, was those two guitars. And then all the single coil stuff was mine.
1: Nice. Nice. Very cool. Um what were some of the 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 guitar pedals that got the most uh usage for your album or was it pretty much most of the board?
0: So it was in terms of pedals and amps on the record, it was everything out at Josh's place. I did not pack a pedal board. I didn't take mm. a single single pedal cuz I know he has good stuff. So uh
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Starting from the Amp part of the signal chain. So it was the first time out there, it was uh his Morgan JS40, which is okay. more or less a super reverb, into a 212 cab that was mic'd with a 57 and a some kind of like variant on a Royer 121 close to that combo. He's a big fan of running two amps at the same time. So the second amp the whole time was a 55 tweed baseman. Oh wow. Uh, so those two amps for the first session, so on, like four of the tunes. and the second time instead of the Morgan head, it was his two rock TS one, which has reverb so pretty close to a bloomfield that with the uh, with the uh, basement. And then I think we used like a Vox AC-10 on a couple chimy chimey parts. Those were the amps. Uh, the basement just had a 57 on it, one room mic. Mm. As for pedals, it was the ones that I remember using. It was a lot of the uh, Love Pedal Purple Plexi. Oh, okay. That was on, for some of the heavier guitar tones. Like I think on Keep On Turning... Uh, maybe on some of right about now, like some of the thicker humbucker sounds, that was what got used a lot for some of the just crunchy stuff. Josh's huge pedal of the Chula by Love Pedal. Oh, yeah. So that was on there some. And then the most used one, like on Broken Lonely on some of the Strat stuff, it was all the, uh, King Tone Duelist, the, uh, oh. right side of that, the Tube Screamer side, so that was the majority of you know the tube screamery classic strat sounding stuff was all that.
1: Wow, very cool, very cool. Yeah, it sounded incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah,
0: I actually just ordered uh Jesse Davy from Kingtone just released the soloist, which is just the right side of the duelist, the tube screamer mm-hmm. side, and I had a Duelist on my board for a while, but they're big, and I was really only using the right side. So, super excited, and I placed an order, I think, as soon as it hit his website for the soloist, which is just that right side of it. But that's a that's a killer pedal. And then we used, like I think, a uh, TC Flashback Mini just for some slapback delay. Mm-hmm. The most of the reverb was just the amp reverb and then some mm-hmm. modulation stuff on, uh, he's got one of those even tied H nines on his board. So yeah. use that a bit for, for some of like the phaser sound on keep on turning, I think was that stuff. So those were the, the pedals and amps.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Cause, uh, w- one thing that I, I find really interesting, um, you know you'll have those you'll have those guitar players where it's like they're not very um, uh, tech savvy as far as like what what they use specifically but for for josh smith from the videos i've seen and just him just him talking about some of his effects he's kind of like an engineer like he's far specifically effects going in and going out and going into this amp and going back in and like even when it comes to like transistors i was like man like this guy really knows. <laughs> he really knows his effects. So that that was probably just uh that was that was probably really useful as far as uh, just to uh, have him hooking everything up in the studio and for him to understand all of that as he's you know helping producing your album.
0: Oh, he absolutely knows his stuff, and of course, he engineers a lot in his studio too. We had uh, Alan Hertz came in and engineered the live sessions just so Josh could be a bit. Uh, more hands-on from producing side with the live tracking sessions but once it was overdubs it was just i was sitting in the studio with josh we would started about noon and go till nine at night ten at night whenever uh (laughs) he's got a great setup there where uh he has a guest room at his studio so i was staying literally in the studio and just walk it waking up's room and starting working. So it was really nice from a workflow side. But yeah, he has such a tech knowledge and everything, not just of effects, but mics mm. and preamps and all that stuff where he definitely knows his stuff. Like I am not a big tweaker in terms of effects, amps, digital stuff. Like he loves the H9. Mm. To me, it's, I've thought about putting one on my board and it's just more than I'd want to use. I don't want to yeah. get into like having to have everything with MIDI switching and uh, dealing with all that. My board's actually really pretty simple. I like mm. amps that aren't too difficult. With this whole current situation, I finally pulled the trigger on one of the Universal Audio Oxes. Okay. Uh, because to me, in terms of home recording and getting really great results, we actually used it on one of the, uh, solos on the record. Cause he's had one for a while, but it's mm. easy to use and it sounds great. Like I had a fractal, uh, one of the Axe effectses for a bit. I wasn't thrilled with what I was getting in terms of some of the low gain sounds from it anyways, mm of just, I like to push air, I like playing with knobs on an amp and how they react. The Fractal, the Kemper, they're great pieces of gear, but for what I do, they just don't make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, I picked up one of the the Oxes just because for me, that's about as far as I wanna go in terms of tweakability. But Josh gets really, really in depth. (laughs) with dialing everything in and yeah the signal path and all that
1: awesome awesome very cool well yeah definitely uh the the album sounds uh sounds great um sounds great is are you working on anything anything new uh uh, uh, that you plan to release soon once everything dies down
0: yes so the uh the original plan, and the reason I was off the road for a bit this spring, is I was trying to by April or May, so now be in the studio recording the next record. That has somewhat gotten put on hold. I mean, it's just even to get five people together in a studio right now. It's just not really doable. I mean, it was supposed to before things even got to the point they are now, had a session scheduled where I was going to try to just to have something to release during all this was going to go in and do something of a live in-studio record of some of the tunes off the last album you know broken lonely I can't help it right about now come back around just a few of the tunes with the band I play with up here and that ended up getting canceled because my bass player had been uh, on a few flights and he was experiencing symptoms. Uh, <laughs> he believes that he and his family probably had it, but, uh, you know, testing has been in such short order they couldn't even get tested. So uh, canceled that session. And at this point, it's just kind of on hold. So it's 70% written at this point, And hopefully by June or so, can go into a studio and track it but the goal at this point it looks like the next record will get released in February but I don't want to release anything where I can't then go tour on it (laughs) so I'm kind of going to sit on it until it's pretty clear when things are going to get back to some degree of normalcy uh it's so up in the air about when things are going to uh get back on track That's it's really anyone's guess at this
1: point right right yeah only only time will tell um so uh uh josh before we before we uh we take off here i wanted to give you the opportunity just to plug anything that um you know your fans uh and, and listeners can uh can uh uh you know, listen to or or, or keep an eye out for or just anything that you're doing during this particular time, Uh, did you want to go ahead and just plug some of the things that uh, your your fans can go to? Sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, as always, all my music's available on iTunes, Spotify, uh, any other the digital outlets. And then I've been doing a lot, lot more on YouTube and Instagram even than normal during this time. My Instagram, and uh, look out for all that content, but going to be uh, posting some videos. I actually just got in uh, the other day. I had Josh uh, go back to the tracking sessions and make me some backing track kind of guitar karaoke versions Mm. of the... uh, songs off the record so posting some videos of some of the solos off the record maybe some little lessons on how i play them so going to have a lot more online content during this time but i'm just i'm really looking forward to to things getting back to normal whenever that is and getting back on the road and playing for people again
1: right right well Seth Rosenblum it's been a great honor and pleasure having you here on the show uh I I can't thank you enough thank you so much for taking the time to do this
0: thank you so much for having me it's
1: been a pleasure awesome it's been fun well there you have it folks this is Jarrell Powell from the 440 Guitar Podcast you'll hear from me soon and have a good day